The Human Podcast features weekly service audio from the Unitarian Universalist Metro Atlanta North Congregation of Roswell, Georgia. Please visit us at human.org. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Denise Wilson, and I'm a member here, and I'm happy to be your worship associate this morning. On behalf of Reverend Dave Dunn, our music director, Alex Peach, my fellow worship associates, it's my great honor to welcome you to the Unitarian Universalist Metro Atlanta North Congregation, which we lovingly call Human. Human is a liberal faith community with the mission to nurture our spirit, strive for justice, and transform the world. No matter who you are, whom you love, or where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. If any of you here are visiting with us for the first time and feel comfortable doing so, We would love for you to please stand or raise your hand and introduce yourself so we can worship with one another as friends. Are there any first-time visitors on my left? Would you like to stand or say your name? Welcome. Any first-time visitors on my right? Welcome everybody, thank you very much. We would love for all our visitors in person and online to fill out a visitor information form and someone from our membership team will be happy to reach out to you. We have just a few announcements before we get started this morning. And I'm gonna start with a very special announcement from our music director about something we've all been waiting for, lo these long years, it's finally happening. Choir is coming back. (laughs) This Wednesday, April 13th, rehearsal will start at 7 and go until 8.30 here in the sanctuary. All you need to bring is your voice and a mask. Um, Have you ever wished you could sing or be part of a community of fun? Now is your chance. This is a safe place to start. Join your voice with voices of friends and be part of something bigger. No previous experience is needed. Uh, Human's annual talent show is also coming back after having been suspended due to COVID. This fun event will be held on Saturday, April 30th at 6.30 p.m. right here on campus. Everyone is invited to attend and to showcase their talents. The cost? is $10 per adult, whether you're performing or attending. Children and youth are free and scholarships are available. Please see Reverend Dave. If you would like to be involved in the opening dance extravaganza, no dancing experience required, please get in touch with Elizabeth Rohan. Next Sunday will be our annual flower communion ceremony. Please bring a flower or two to share with others. And Side With Love's UU The Vote 2022 launch party will take place this afternoon at 4 p.m. 
You can look for the human announcements or visit the Side with Love website. That's one word, sidewithlove.org, or the human members' Facebook page to join. Good morning. A special thanks this morning to uh, Jim Nickens, Mike Lieber-Gazelle, who an hour ago this place was empty, devoid of chairs. They set all of the chairs up. So thanks to them and our live stream team who uh, had some technical issues they had to address just about 10 minutes ago. So we thank them for their uh, durability, their can-do attitude. This, the words of this morning's call to worship are by James Baldwin. He writes, any real change implies the breakup of the world as one has always known it, the loss of all that gave one an identity, the end of safety. And at such a moment, unable to see and not, daring to imagine what the future will now bring forth, one clings to what one knows or dreams that one possessed. It is only when one is able, without bitterness, bitterness or self-pity, to surrender a dream they have long cherished or a privilege they have long possessed, that they are set free. They have set themselves free for higher dreams, for greater privileges. And now let us light our chalice together. Our chalice lighting this morning is Come We Now Out of the Darkness by Annie Forster. Come we now out of the darkness of our unknowing and the dusk of our dreaming. Come we now from far places. Come we now into the twilight of our awakening and the reflection of our gathering. Come we now all together. We bring unilluminated our dark caves of doubting. We seek unbedazzled the clear light of understanding. May the sparks of our joining kindle our resolve, brighten our spirits, reflect our love, and unshadow our days. Now is the time in our service when the love that binds us together is spoken aloud. If you have a joy or a sorrow that you would like to share this morning, please come to the microphone, share your joy or sorrow, and drop a pebble into the bowl. And if you're joining us online this morning, please type your joys and sorrows into the chat. Um, I, ha I have a concern that my granddaughter, who is in the eighth grade, is um, having the kinds of trouble that only an eighth grader or ninth grader can have. She's feeling isolated and having trouble with her friendships and um, having a lot of low self-esteem problems. So. Please hold my in your thoughts. Uh, I'm Tanya, and most of you know that I lost my Veronica recently, my doggie of 13 and a half years, and while that is definitely a sorrow, I want to thank 
my friends and my loved ones here because so many of you reached out and sent beautiful thank you notes and it's just it's amazing to have the friends that you make here thank you and i'll drop one final pebble for those joys and sorrows still too tender to escape the folds of our hearts This month, the month of April, UMEN's 50-50 recipient is the Southern Center for Human Rights, a legal organization that works for equality, dignity, and justice for those suffering from mass incarceration, the criminalization of poverty, and those facing death in one of our prisons. Here this morning to tell us about the good work the Southern Center for Human Rights does in the Deep South is Lorette Serkin. Lorette Serkin is the Development Director for the Southern Center for Human Rights. She is a consummate development professional with vast experience and thrives on telling the story of an organization to foster engagement and make an impact in her community. Prior to joining the SCHR team, Lorette worked at the North American Mission Board where she served as the Director of Donor Relations building relationships with donors and helping to support the annual campaign that raised over $60 million for the organization's mission. She also helped lead the organization's efforts in donor cultivation and stewardship, as well as implementing new initiatives such as crowdfunding and text to give, while championing programs such as employee giving campaigns and legacy planning. Prior to her work at NAMB, Lorette worked for over 15 years in Atlanta independent schools, assisting with fundraising and operations. She also has vast experience in the nonprofit software space and has a knack for blending grassroots fundraising and modern technology. Lorette has a bachelor's degree in business administration as well as an MBA. Her commitment to change and social impact is evident in her work. A native of Washington, D.C., who has called Atlanta home for 30 years. We're happy you're with us, Lorette. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oops. Get closer. So the Southern Center has been around for a little over 45 years. Um, I learned from Mary Beth that you guys recently took a trip to EJI, or the Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama, and I'm thrilled to learn that. Uh, Brian Stevenson got his start as an intern for the Southern Center, and so we are, we're very closely tied. Um, so as Denise was telling you, we um, are a place where we like to fight for equal justice uh, and abolish the death penalty. Uh, and fight for uh, mass incarceration and the criminalization of poverty. We were founded in 1976 by a group of ministers and activists concerned about criminal justice issues uh, in the Deep South. So today I want to talk to you a little bit about impact litigation. Uh, this particular unit works uh, to fight prison and jail conditions, the right to counsel, police abuses, voting rights, um, and this uh, work is strategic and meant to bring about societal change. <clears throat> this is where we work to address the horrific prison and jail conditions that our clients are forced to live in, propose alternatives to imprisonment, to combat years of mass incarceration and extreme sentencing, and, how, and the 
<clears throat> and begin to address the myriad of issues that come along with the prioritization of wealth-based detention. If you look in the packet that I provided, there is a graph that was created by our friends at the Prison Policy Initiative. It treats every US state as if it were a country. And as you can see, Georgia and Alabama rank fourth and fifth, respectively, in the world in the rate at which they imprison people. Nine of the top 10 states leading the world in caging people were the last strongholds of slavery in the United States. It is this very connection that draws the staff of the Southern Center to this very work. As we know, slavery did not end. It just morphed into a very different uh, system of oppression called convict leasing. Convict leasing derived free labor from blacks convicted of crimes, and this system lasted well into the 20th century. Our impact litigation unit works to confront and challenge the many systems of modern day slavery. The next slide I presented talks about prison and jail conditions. I'll let you read the staggering statistics about one of the prisons where we do a lot of work called Lee Arendale. This particular prison houses over a thousand women. <clears throat> let me just talk about a few conditions there. It's located in North Georgia near Gainesville and it is severely understaffed. As a mother of three, I have to admit that this issue is very hard for me to approach. I cannot even begin to imagine how hard it would be to give birth while incarcerated. Even harder for me to fathom would be that after giving birth to my newborn, it would be taken away from me within one to two days of delivery because I was in prison. Then to add to that immeasurable pain, I'm returned to prison without my child and in the same bloody clothes that I gave birth in. The horror continues upon my return to prison by being placed in solitary confinement for no other reason than having just given birth, where I won't be able to make phone calls to check on my new baby. And what about the inevitable and excruciating levels of pain of having my wrists, feet, and torso shackled while I attempt to walk in the days and weeks following the delivery of a baby that I cannot hold? The Southern Center sent a very detailed letter of warning to the Georgia Department of Corrections and the Arendale staff demanding an end to, these, to this barbaric treatment of new mothers at the prison. While I am happy to report that some postpartum women are no longer being shackled, we recognize that our work must continue to end a culture of harm that upends so many women's lives at Arendale. The problems at this prison are facility-wide, and everyone is experiencing them. <clears throat> a group of lawmakers showed up at the prison unannounced seeking a tour of the conditions there. Even they were turned away despite wearing name badges saying who they were. The warden said, anybody can say they're anyone. The next slide shows a statement from one of a, <clears throat> a brave man who spoke up about conditions that he saw at another prison, Georgia State Prison. It is located in Southeast Georgia. The irony of Georgia State Prison is that it's a special mission prison, meaning its stated goal is to provide enhanced services and treatment to people suffering from the effects of serious mental illness. <clears throat> uh, the reality is that the men in this prison have psychiatric disabilities, and the way that they treat the men here is that they lock them in solitary confinement for months and sometimes years at a time. They are locked away in cells infested with rats and roaches that crawl on them as they try to sleep. 
They are also locked away in these cells that have toilets that can only be flushed by guards outside of their cells. However, 70% of GSP's staff positions are vacant, so the chances of having one's toilet flushed daily are slim. This statement that I referred to earlier is a declaration by one of our courageous clients. He describes seeing a man attempting to take his life in his cell, reporting what he saw to a guard, the guard then replying, let him do it. And sadly, later watching as this suicidal man was removed from his cell on a stretcher. This man is one of 12 at GSP who committed suicide in the last two years, accounting for a full third of all prison suicides in Georgia. The next slide shows a Justice Department investigation at Georgia State Prisons after 44 inmate deaths and LGBT uh, assaults. Sometimes George, uh, the Southern Center can't do our work alone and we partner with various um, uh, agencies. We're always working towards an end to cruel practices and cultural uh, indifferences. And while this has always been at the core of our work, it has only increased dramatically over the last few years with COVID. From January 2020 to September 2020, 21 people had been killed in Georgia prisons. The number of people killed at a single prison in Georgia exceeded the number of people killed in the entire Department of Corrections in other states. Between this and the crisis that COVID is creating, our office knew we could not change the conditions in Georgia's 35 plus prisons and over 100 jails on our own. So we contacted the, OG, the DOJ asking for their federal intervention. In 2020, September 2021, we got just that. That investigation will take years and we know that. Just to give you some more staggering statistics, <clears throat> um, their uh, investigation is only limited to violence. And so the assaults and suicides, that is another staggering number. When we contacted the DOJ, 14 incarcerated people had taken their lives in the preceding nine months. And since then, 23 more people have committed suicide. As far as indigent defense and the right to counsel, there's so much to say. The current statewide system is not even 20 years old, if you can believe that. It was established uh, by the Indigent Defense Act of, of 2003, thanks in part to work of the Southern Center. And our policy work is worlds away from where we started, but still has a very long way to go. For a little bit of perspective, as you can see on this graph that's shown, George, the whole state of Georgia shares a meager $60 million budget for their public defender program. Just to give you perspective, the counties of Los Angeles has a budget of $220 million for their public defender program. New York City, 210 and Chicago, 80 million. I'm not sure the word shocking even begins to cover it. In the state of Georgia, we spend 20 times more, in fact, on jails and prisons than we do on public defense. Prior to 2005, some lawyers were paid as little as $50 or less per case to defend a client. Sometimes poor people languished in jail for months and sometimes over a year without ever even seeing a lawyer. In some courts, judges refused to appoint counsel to defendants who posted bond, like that was an indication that they could afford counsel. Lawyers were regularly absent from juvenile court, leaving scared juveniles and their families <clears throat> to fend for themselves. 
Regrettably, the structural elements of our system leaves much to be desired, except for very little pay, long hours, and unwieldy caseloads. As we know, the Fourth Amendment is simple in terms. It's supposed to protect people from unreasonable searches and seizures. This protection was paramount to a case that we recently settled where we represented uh, a group of young people dubbed the Cartersville 70, like Miss Guider pictured here with her very young son. The group who were illegally detained, searched, arrested, and charged for possessing less than an ounce of marijuana at a house party in North Georgia. We believe this situation was treated differently because the patrons of the party were mostly black. They spent between one to six days in jail, during which point their mugshots circulated far and wide online, leaving the group traumatized. A lot of the clients lost their jobs, some lost scholarships, some lost military deferments. Young people coming together to celebrate now put their dreams on hold. Thankfully, as of last month, we were able to reach a settlement with the defendants and got the clients close to a million dollars as a settlement. I also want to introduce you to Calvin Moreland, Charles Brewer, and Pamela Williams. These three brave souls, along with other city residents and the state and local NAACP chapters, work to challenge a policy from LaGrange, Georgia, in federal court. This particular city liked to bring about charges because they were the only group that offered utility services in their particular city. This is a prime example of the criminalization of poverty. The city of LaGrange was forcing people in municipal court subject to a host of offenses, including failure to yield to possession of marijuana, uh, <clears throat> who were ordered to pay fines. If they couldn't pay their fines in full, the city's collection department added their fines to their utility account and threatened to turn off their water, lights, and heat if they couldn't pay their fines. Being that the city is the only servicer, this threat became much more scary in some instances. And for someone like Mr. Brewer, who had health needs, this could have been a death sentence. This policy fell squarely on the shoulders of black residents. Our investigation found that 90% of the people who were impacted by it were black. We've continued to challenge voter suppression efforts that criminalize black political engagement. You may know Miss Olivia Pearson, the first black city council person in Douglas, Georgia, which is about three hours south of Atlanta in Coffee County. Despite her elected position, fellow city and county officials have been blatant in their efforts to undo her voter mobilization work. In 2012, District Attorney George Barnhill, who you may remember from the Ahmaud Arbery case, he later would go on to say that there didn't need to be a murder charge in his case. <clears throat> she was charged with voter uh, fraud in 2012. She was later, uh, um, uh, that charge was uh, dismissed, uh, but Barnhill's zealous pursuit of Miss Pearson would make you think she killed someone. His office prosecuted her not once, but twice. After her first trial ended in a mistrial in 2017, we represented her in her second trial, which was quickly acquitted. Her fellow elected officials went after her again this past October in the run-up to the November election. 
In 2020, she was arrested again while assisting a voter in the presidential election. She was charged with criminal trespass and banned from all Coffee County Board of Elections property indefinitely. In December, 2020, uh, in December, SCHR and co-counsel filed a complaint and motion for a preliminary injunction on behalf of Ms. Pearson challenging her arrest. To say we are privileged to stand with someone like Ms. Pearson or Mr. Moreland in LaGrange, or Ms. Garter, Ms. Guider in Cartersville, and many other survivors in Georgia and Alabama's criminal systems would be a gross understatement. Even on our darkest days, we are bolstered by their courage and grace. On behalf of myself and all my colleagues at the Southern Center, I am inspired by our partners, people like you who believe in our mission, and what we do and come alongside us to help fuel our approach to ending mass incarceration, the death penalty, the criminalization of poverty and racial injustice, <clears throat> which includes innovative and bold litigation, strategic policy work, community education, empowerment, and that support. We've been doing this work for more than 45 years and we've been working to transform this criminal legal system that is so broken. And we will continue doing that for as long as it takes. We can't thank you enough for embarking on this journey with us. It means the world, and for that, I say thank you. Lorette, thank you very much. In an effort to fulfill and further the vision and mission of this congregation, we ask that our members and friends bring forth and share their many and varied gifts. With this, we will now take the offering using the Givelify app. And when giving, please select the 50-50 plate option. All 50-50 plate selections for the month of April will be split between Human and the Southern Center for Human Rights to support the very good work they do. Thank you.
We accept this sacred offering generously given by our beloved members and friends. May we use it wisely and judiciously in service to our mission. The reading this morning is called You Can't Just Look Away by Samantha Power. In Samantha Power's book, A Problem from Hell, she relates a story of Senator Bob Dole's visit to Kosovo in 1990, where the Belgrade regime was repressing Kosovo's ethnic Albanians. At first, the Serb authorities tried to keep Dole and six Senate colleagues from entering Serbia's southern province, prompting Dole to storm out of a Belgrade meeting. They next tried to supply the group with a Serbian watchdog who would prevent them from speaking freely to Albanians. In the end, the Belgrade regime supplied a Serb driver who roared into Kosovo's capital at breakneck speed in order to block the American lawmakers from viewing the grim police state. As the bus entered Pristina, thousands of ethnic Albanians lined the streets and began chanting, USA, USA. Dole later recalled appalling and unforgettable scenes of hundreds of people running across the fields to wave to the speeding bus while police with guns and clubs mauled them. After returning, Dole told the Washington Post of tanks and troops everywhere, hundreds of demonstrators fleeing in all directions trying to avoid the club-wielding security forces and tear gas rising of the confusion and carnage. Scores were injured and hundreds arrested. Dole's act of witnessing conditioned his response to future reports of atrocity. As his chief foreign policy advisor, Mira Barata, notes, it is one thing to have a natural inclination to care about human rights But it is another thing entirely when you see people who only want to wave at Americans getting pummeled before your own eyes. Once you have seen that, you just can't look away. Capitalism is not a type of economic system. It is a system of oppression. Today's capitalism is the new slavery, a new way to exploit people, the earth, everything it touches. I do not want to be a part of the American pie. The American pie means raping every country we've been in, and I don't want any of that blood money. I don't want it. I don't want to be a part of that system. It's impossible for white and black people to talk about building a relationship based on humanity when the country is the way it is. 
when institutions are clearly against all of us because the men who run this country are sick, sick, and we need to fight to articulate our position, fight to control our basic institutions which perpetuate racism and oppression by destroying them. We need to destroy them and build up new ones. These are not my words. They're words of Stokely Carmichael, who in the late 60s became the leader of the SNCC and then the Black Power Movement. I hope you experienced a bit of edginess, uneasiness, and tension with these words. They're unnerving and can be at times disorienting. They may be, bring about feelings of anxiety, worry, distress, even fear. And you might think that the speaker is a crazed lunatic. His words call for revolution. The irony of this call for revolution is that what he wants to revolt against is the USA. The same USA seen as an ideal around the world. The same USA being chanted by those in Kosovo while occupying police with guns and clubs mauled them. The irony of the USA, a great idea, a great country, no doubt, yet one that is, at the same time, deeply flawed and troubling, as we know, and as Laura told us this morning, in many ways, in many fronts. Yet what comes to mind when you hear someone shout on the street something like, the time has come for revolution? You might think they're a crackpot, radical, lunatic, maybe an impractical, naive anarchist. But does it put you on edge a little bit? Is there a hint of danger? What's difficult about history is that a lot of work, a lot of study must be done to truly connect with that history's backstory of what those who were actually participating in the history actually felt, what they worried about, what kept them up at night. While they were in it, creating that history, and they didn't know it was history at the time, it was just doing what they were doing, while they were in it, they weren't privileged to see the ending that to us sometimes seems to make perfect sense. When we lose, forget, or disregard that backstory, history can ossify into something permanent or fixed, like a book that has a fixed beginning and an ending. The beginning is a cause, the ending is the result, and we kind of forget about the middle, all the anxiety and worry that was part of that middle story. We often view this fixed ending as if it could be no other way, that the ending makes perfect sense, that it was the natural order of things. Here's a history. A woman, Rosa Parks, sits on a bus. A strike happens, some court cases take place, and the result is the end of segregation, end of story. Yes, that seemed to make sense. Those Jim Cross segregation laws were, that was just crazy. That was just nuts. What were they thinking? 
But what about the backstory? It's easy to forget what Rosa Parks and those with whom she was organized, and she was organized with many others. It's easy to forget what they were actually thinking in the moment. What was going to happen? Were they sure about themselves? Did she worry about being killed? Were they sure about their success? Did they, did they even know what success would look like? Did they know that the bus boycott would take an entire year? An entire year. Here are some other histories. The people of India were upset with their oppression by the British government. This man, Gandhi, inspires them to become an independent nation, and eventually they succeed, and now in, India is a free country. Or a Jewish man named Jesus preaches the theology of love of God and love of neighbor. He's put to death by Roman authorities, yet his death and resurrection inspires a new religious movement, the largest religious movement in world history. In 1955, a young minister named Martin Luther King Jr. is selected, voted to be the spiritual leader of this Montgomery bus boycott. This boycott ignites the civil rights movement. Jim Crow is eventually, Jim Crow laws are eventually abolished. This is often, often, not always, but often the depth with which we understand history. We know the beginning, we know the ending, we don't know that much about the middle. What did Gandhi, Jesus, Martin Luther King actually feel in their ministries? And I will call them ministries. Could they sleep at night? Were they terrified at times? Do we ever think about that? When I was entering in fifth grade, a neighbor friend of mine said, oh, in fifth grade, you'll learn about the explorers, Columbus and Magellan and Vasco da Gama and Cortez. Those, those were the people of the age of exploration. They were the explorers. That was, that's, how it was, that's how it was labeled, the age of exploration. They, they were discovering the new world, one that we happen to live in. And now the age of exploration is over. Why? Well, because we've searched everywhere and we've mapped out the globe. It's done. End of story. But what if I were to say that the age of exploration is not over? That it can't be over? What if I were to say that we are called upon not to sit tight, not to stand by, but to be explorers? And that to be explorers, the danger of revolution is necessary. The danger, the edginess, the fear, that deep uncertainty is what is called on. It comes with the territory of being an explorer. You see, what's yet to be discovered can't be found on any map. What's yet to be discovered, what's yet to be created through deep uncertainty and fear and danger of revolution is a better world. A better world that people like Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and Jesus gave their lives for.
a better world that they were hoping to discover and find as explorers, and yes, as revolutionaries. And they were all revolutionaries. They were revolutionaries and explorers seeking the new world of beloved community. And before their stories were written and fixed with a fixed beginning and endings, before their stories and histories were later viewed as the natural order of things, before their opponents were viewed as what were they thinking, oppressors, Jesus, Gandhi, and Martin Luther King were labeled as being crazy, impractical, naive, dangers to society, anarchists. All three, think about this, all three were despised by segments of people in their own communities. What, that, what must that have felt like for them? Gandhi and Jesus were killed, essentially, by member, members of their own communities. Imagine that. Imagine what it would feel like to be a Unitarian Universalist explorer, searching for a new world of beloved community, yet having thousands of other UUs hating you for it, hating you enough to kill you for it. What would that feel like? What kind of person do you have to be to have to face that? What kind of character must you have? What kind of sacrifice would you have to make to be able to face that? Gandhi, Jesus, and Martin Luther King Jr. didn't know their story's end. We know the ending of the story as something that was always kind of meant to be. Yet they saw nothing but fear, uncertainty, anxiety, worry, doubt. And they no doubt questioned themselves. Am I doing the right thing? Is this worth the effort? Will anybody have my back? Am I crazy to do this? Could I be wrong? That's their humanity and reality. Again, all these leaders were killed, assassinated, or crucified for their revolutionary behavior. In its day, that behavior couldn't be tolerated. And it likely can't be tolerated in the present day either. I'm convinced that if Jesus were, returned to earth, were to return to earth preaching the good news and gospel of his beloved ministry, it probably would not go well for him personally. Yet he still might end up changing the world. I truly believe that Jesus, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, those revolutionary explorers would want us to honor them, not through holidays, parades, or even sermons, but at, by picking up their torch and carrying it into a new era of exploration. They would say, stand on our shoulders and tell us what you can see. And then they dared you, dare you, to create that better world that you envision. I believe that Unitarian Universalism can be our ship of exploration that will take us into unchartered waters 
searching, hoping to create a, that better world we envision, a world we know can be, and we may not get there ourselves, but let's let us consider our work as a gift for those who are not yet here, for our children, for our children's children, and for all children and all people who will follow in our footsteps. The true legacy of all explorers calls upon us not to celebrate, not to commemorate, but to continue to answer the call to explore, to don the mantle of fear and uncertainty and help create a better world. Amen. Let us extinguish our chalice together. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we carry in our hearts until we meet again. And I will close with the words of Unitarian minister Theodore Parker, who writes, May ours be a religion which, like sunshine, goes everywhere. Its temple, all space. Its shrine, the good heart. Its creed, all truth. Its ritual, works of love. And its profession of faith, divine living. Go in peace and enjoy your week. The Unitarian Universalist Metro Atlanta North Congregation of Roswell, Georgia, thanks you for listening to The Human Podcast. Background music, courtesy of Tim Moore from Pixabay. <laughs>